The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Now here she is. Nice, isn't she? Smallish. I'm not overly. Which room do you really need for what you do, anyway? I got a surveyor and his wife interested in renting it. They're just waiting to hear back. What's her range? Standard short. She'll break Atmo from a wide orbit. Get you where you need to go, bring you back home again. She's space-worthy, just like the rest of Serenity is. No need to sound so defensive, Captain. I prefer something with a few miles on it. Were we to enter into this arrangement, Captain Reynolds, there are a few things I would require from you. The foremost being complete autonomy. This shuttle would be my home. No crew member, including yourself, would be allowed entrance without my express invitation. You get your privacy. And just so we're clear, under no circumstances will I be servicing you or anyone who is under your employ. I'll post a sign. London. It's Thursday, October 8th, 2009. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now till noon. Hey, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color. Color into black and white. Under the bedclothes. Everything will be and welcome to our show today here on CHRW Radio 94.9, where 519-661-3600 is the open line number you can call if you want to comment on any of the subject that Robert and I are going to be talking about today. For my part, in the latter half of the show, I will be actually answering some email that we got from a couple of our, one of our listeners, a very good letter, probably an experience that a lot of us have had over time, and we're going to answer a number of his questions on how to debate with a socialist. Also want to touch upon, you've heard, heard this latest Harper initiative supported by all other parties. Um, I call it unreasonable suspicion. They want to give police the right to pull you over uh, without due suspicion for any reason, just to check to see if you've been drinking. And for the first half of the program, Robert, take her away. Let's, t- let's see what you got for us today. Well, today, Bob, I'm going to talk about uh, something that's just been in the uh, news quite a bit, actually. And that is uh, the Privacy Commissioner and the uh, so-called right to privacy. Now, I've never really given much uh, thought to the comings and goings of the Privacy Commissioner. No, it's uh, private. <laughs> <laughs> She's been very secret. Yeah. No. Um, you know, on a couple of occasions, though, um, you do take notice. For example, uh, recently this summer, they um, investigated Facebook, the uh, social networking mm-hmm. site. And uh, back in 2007... They uh, talked about uh, street view on Google, where uh, a car goes really around. Just point a camera out into the public street kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I've actually seen it uh, in Ottawa about a year or so ago, two years ago now. They had a camera on top of this small car just driving around the streets, taking pictures of uh, the street, uh, the houses. So those kinds of things, uh, you know, bring her into a high profile. But what I wanted to do... Uh, since she just came out with her uh, annual report for 2008 to Parliament, Bob, was um, to look a little more into the whole idea of privacy and whether or not um, we have a right to privacy, if well, so. I think that's an idea worth looking at, and I think I've, I've heard so many debates on privacy issues that just aren't about privacy at all. We're and, certainly and not about our know, privacy. Right, and, and people often don't know where to draw the line between what is legitimately private and what is not. Right, how do we define it? Yeah. Uh, and well, also, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll get into okay, that. I'm okay. going to say how I define it at okay. least, because there's not a lot of material on the right itself, legally or philosophically. Um, I also want to delve into what are the powers yeah. of no, this. No, personally, I don't believe there's such a thing as a right to privacy. But well, okay, we'll, we'll see we'll if we arrive at the same conclusion. We may actually disagree then. I think. Okay. Because um, I was like-minded until until again you start doing some research and you start thinking okay. about it critically. And you come up with, uh, you know, you can change your mind. And I often change my mind when you start to, to think about things for mm-hmm. any extended period of time. But um, I want to talk about the powers of this commissioner, the privacy commissioner. And actually, I think that's a good segue into your talk about uh, the police pulling people over uh, without sure. suspicion anymore. Um, so, my, like I said before, my knee-jerk reaction uh, to the notion of a right to privacy was that we don't have one. 
You know, other than the fact that people can't just come into my house uninvited, I thought that as soon as I walked out my front door, any illusion of privacy ended. Uh, well, as with many other things, you know, uh, knee-jerk reactions, I was wrong. At least, I, I think I'm wrong. Like most things political or philosophical, I often turn to uh, Ayn Rand for a bit of guidance. And in doing so this time, I found a great quote from her book, The Fountainhead. And I'll just quote you that. Civilization is the progress towards a society of privacy. The savage's whole existence is public, ruled by the laws of his tribe. Civilization is the process of setting men free from men, unquote. That's so, out of the Fountainhead. That's it? out of the Fountainhead, oh, I thought, yeah. I didn't know it was from that particular novel. I thought it was out of one of her essays. <laughs> oh, no, that, well, you know something? I didn't actually look in the Fountainhead to get this. I got this by uh, just searching for random privacy. Oh, I see. And that particular researcher said it was from the Fountainhead. They could be wrong. Oh, never know. Uh, you don't trust the Internet. <laughs> <laughs> So apparently Rand had some idea that privacy is at least something of value. But is it a right? I had to think about it some more, since Rand herself never actually wrote much more on the topic than the quote I just read you. Now this is what I've reasoned so far. We do have a right to privacy, but it is not a fundamental right. It's a corollary of other rights that we have. The right to own property, the right to our life and liberty, and the right to enter into contracts with then, others. Then we agree, Robert. Oh, okay. Because I don't know that I'd call a corollary right a right. But uh, carry on. Well, in that sense, you yeah. know, a right to property is a corollary of the right to life. Because you can't, it's the uh, you enabling right. You could almost say any action that you take under freedom is a corollary of that freedom you have. Yes. But to call it an individual, you can't say you have a right to sit in a chair or a right to stand or up. Or a right, right to a to job. Or a right to a bus or a right <laughs> to a job or, or, or a right to privacy. Right. You know, yeah. that's, that's all I'm in getting that at. In that sense. It's, right. it's all about defining your terms. Okay. Okay, the extension of a right to privacy is often a natural consequence of these other rights, like the right to property. Basically, we can build a house and shut the doors and close the blinds and be confident that we're enjoying our privacy, away from the prying eyes of the rest of the tribe. The right to privacy is also a consequence of our right to enter into consensual contracts or agreements with others. Every time you go on a website that asks you if you agree to a set of terms before entering the site or becoming a member, like with Facebook, you're entering into an agreement with that company. If the terms are that you will respect their privacy and not share your information, well, that's just Andy. But if the terms of membership are that they will keep your information indefinitely and share it with others, well, you know, that's just Andy too. Right. Remember, if you click on agree and become a member, you're consenting to their privacy policy. Exactly. You always had the right to choose not to become a member. Enter the privacy commissioner okay. and the law and the government. Back in 2000, the Parliament of Canada passed Bill C-6, or the Personal Information Protection and Electronic Documents Act, PIPIDA for short. Oh, yeah. I'll remember that when I go home. <laughs> <laughs> Take notes. Yeah. This act made it clear that the government now had an interest in you clicking that little I agree button and an interest in your consensual relationship with sites like Facebook, MySpace, Twitter, or any other website, or for that matter, brick-and-mortar business. The act created a position called the Privacy Commissioner, who has very real powers and authority. Some of these powers might surprise you. Here are a few. Tell me after hearing this, Bob, whether you think the privacy czar is an appropriate term for the Privacy Commissioner. She was called that in the paper just well, yesterday. I have a feeling it will be, but let's yeah. see. Now, Section 12 of the act says, the Commissioner may, when conducting an investigation, one, summon and enforce the appearance of persons before the Commissioner and compel them to give oral or written evidence on oath and to produce any records and things that the commissioner considers necessary to investigate the complaint in the same manner and to the same extent as a superior court of record. This means, Bob, that if you are a business owner with a complaint against you, by the way, that complainant can be anonymous and an anonymity is guaranteed, the commissioner can oh, force... <laughs> you can see where I'm going with yeah. this. The commissioner can force you to become, come before her and force you to give evidence. This is before any actual charges are laid. Two, receive and accept any evidence and other information, whether on oath, by affidavit, or otherwise, that the commissioner sees fit, whether or not this would be admissible in a court of law. Sound very much like the Human Rights Commission's, exactly, Bob? Exactly. Even your first comment, especially. Facts don't seem to matter in their investigations. Evidence may not be admissible in court of law, but can become a crucial part of their investigation. It may even be hearsay or lies. It yep. doesn't matter. Just like the Human Rights Commission. Yep. 
And what bothers me is all these principles are percolating into the real court system as well. Yes, setting uh, a precedent. Oh, yes. And, and, well, is it a precedent anymore? (laughs) Not anymore. It's become almost de facto uh, the way of doing things now. We've gone to the Napoleonic Code in a funny sort of way, haven't we? The third one, at any reasonable time, enter any premises other than a dwelling house. Thank God our houses are still safe anyway for the time being. Just by virtue of a single exception to a rule and a a clause like that. That's Mm -hmm. scary. Yeah. They can enter any uh, premise occupied by an organization on satisfying any security requirements of the organization relating to the premises. In other words, there are other officials who can do this, you realize. You know, safety inspectors, fire inspectors, Ministry of Labor, that well, kind of know, thing. You know, speaking of premises, I can't help this, Robert, but you know the whole idea is formed on a false premise. <laughs> Just <laughs> had, had to get too that early in the hour for puns there. Okay, <laughs> I'll save them for later. <laughs> do you realize that even the police can't do this without probable cause or warrant? They can come into a business like that and, and, and start to inquire and, and fact, ask and take in records. In fact, Robert, I, I actually do realize that because I have a lot of friends in the fire department. And uh, often the fire department is called to places because they have ent- powers of entry the police don't have, and the police use the fire department to get into places that they can't get into. Yeah, yep, I believe So it. pretty soon they'll be calling the privacy commissioner and the HRC and whoever else they might need. <laughs> the, last, yeah. the last power I'll talk about is um, examine or obtain copies of or extracts from records found in any premises entered under the previous paragraph I just mentioned that contain matter relevant to the investigation. So, apparently... The privacy of the anonymous complainant is respected, but not the premises or records of the businessman under investigation. Granted, what is discovered during these searches is supposed to be kept confidential. I still have to ask myself the question, how did we ever survive without a privacy commissioner? Well, that's a good question. I think it's a good time for a break right now because uh, the clip you're about to hear is actually, I know you're familiar with this series, Robert, of course, yes, Minister. And uh, this is from the fourth episode, actually, called uh, Big Brother. And, uh, you know, as we learn, whenever there is issues of privacy, it's not really about one person obtaining information from another or anything like that. It's always about the government grabbing information from its citizens and then trying to create safeguards from that same government to those citizens because of the information they're grabbing. And that's basically what the whole point of some of these clips are. I'm going to take a break for about two minutes, and we'll be back right after this. Recording in one minute, studio. Stand by. We are going to talk about cuts in government extravagance, that sort of thing, Bob, aren't we? Now, fine, Jim, we'll get to that if we've got time after the National Database. You know, I don't think people are really interested in the database, are they? It's so trivial. BT running. What's the matter? You're just looking a bit too pink. Can't have that. What will the Daily Telegraph say? <laughs> I mean, all those questions about, are we creating a police state? I trust we can do without those, can't Now, we? come on, Jim. You know me. I don't give out my questions in advance. Dead silence now, please. Ten seconds. <clears throat> Good evening. Is Big Brother watching you? To be more precise, <laughs> did you know that the government is building up a dossier on you? It's called by the harmless-sounding name of National Integrated Database. <laughs> what it means is that at the press of a button, any civil servant can inspect just about every detail of your life. Your tax, your medical record, periods of unemployment, children's school records, the lot. And that civil servant may happen to be your next-door neighbor. Well, recently there's been mounting concern over this powerful, even totalitarian weapon that the computer revolution has put into the government's hand. And the man who wields the weapon is the Minister for Administrative Affairs, Right Honourable James Hacker, MP. Now, Minister, are you laying the foundations of the police state? You know, I'm glad you asked me that question. (laughs) Well, Minister, could we have the answer? Well, yes, what I... Just about to give it to you, I may. Uh, Yes, as I said, I'm glad you asked me that question because it's a question a lot of people are asking. Because a lot of people want to know the answer to it. And let's be quite clear about this without beating about the bush. The plain fact of the matter is that it's a very important question indeed. And people have a right to know. 
You know, Bob, that's funny because I just heard Michael Ignatiev on the radio just not a half an hour ago ducking a question <laughs> straightforward just, just, just like, like that. That's a good question. <laughs> uh, so where were we? We were talking about the privacy commissioner yes. and how did we ever survive without her just since 2000? Because if you just look at yesterday's paper, for example. So has this been our first privacy commissioner? Is that what you're saying? You yeah. know, something I don't know. It's been about seven, uh, nine years since mm -hmm. it's been installed. So um, I haven't researched who was the privacy commissioner over these last nine years. But uh, the, the latest one, um, Jennifer Stoddard, the Canadian one, um, was just in the paper the other day talking about, here's the headline, Dangerous Stock Internet. Ooh. <laughs> you know? Young Canadians should proceed with caution, says the free press, uh, putting their uh, personal lives online. That's what the Canadian czar warns, and that's what they call her, the Canadian Well, with her out there, czar. she's correct. Danger does stalk the Internet. It's true, but <laughs> why do we need a privacy commissioner to go and say that? It's, that's been said by everybody in advocacy groups, parents all over the sure. place. It's not said all the time. We don't need to pay somebody some huge salary just to come out and say that. Is that the extent of a report? I hope not. Well, it's By preventative stuff. That's what they're doing, you know. Signs, signs, everywhere a sign. <laughs> Locking up the scenery. <laughs> right. And that, with my money. That's a problem. Mm -hmm. The Privacy Commissioner, just to continue on about all those restrictions that she has and all those powers she has, did you know that if you ob uh, obstruct her inner investigation, you can be fined up to $100,000 just for obstruction? Now, mind you, I am an advocate of the rule of law, and so are you, Bob. I, I, I understand, mm -hmm. you know. We both are. But um, when does the law overstep the bounds? When it no you longer know? becomes the rule of exactly. law. Exactly. You know, it's no longer the rule of law. It's the rule of whim. Yeah. The rule of law is not like an arbitrary, you know, it doesn't mean that you obey any law that your government creates. No, you know? of course not. The government can be wrong. C correct. And that's why <laughs> often is. Uh, the rule of law is really almost more of a personal responsibility than a government one. That's just where I'm going. There are times when it's... Just where I'm going with know, this, Bob. It's personal responsibility. Law just to be responsible. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the function of the justice system, Bob, is to protect our rights according to law and according to established rules of justice, which are over 700 years old in our common law heritage. You should not be subject to government agents compelling you to give testimony against yourself. You should not be subject to searches of your businesses and searches of your records and seizure of your records without probable grounds or a warrant. A complaint from an anonymous person, who may very well just be a rival businessman, by the way, is not enough to have your own rights violated by a government bureaucrat. If we think that our right to privacy is being violated, then legal mechanisms already exist to have them addressed. The criminal code and the civil courts. An impartial judge could determine whether or not a contract was violated or property trespassed. The creation of a privacy czar, uh, to be more precise, Bob, it's pri privacy czarina, which is the female. <laughs> a real word, you mean? <laughs> yeah. yeah? Oh. Um, only establishes a monolithic bureaucracy whose main goal is to scare the public. Look at that headline, danger stock internet. Yeah. Scare the public into thinking that every time they log onto their computer, some evil hacker is going to steal their credit card information or cyber molest their children. The first line of defense to protecting your rights, and this is what you were just talking about, Bob, rests with each and every one of us. Just as you would lock your doors at night, there are steps you could take to protect your privacy online. You can't just be lazy and hope that the government's going to do the job for us every time, especially at the expense of more fundamental rights. If you don't want your information compromised by companies you deal with, then find out what they intend to do with the information. And if you don't like it, don't give them your information. It's as simple as that. When I go to my local electronics store, I think you might know the name of it, to buy a camera, and the cashier asks me for my phone number, I don't give it to them. Sure. It's not necessary for the transaction. Yeah, so I don't like give he's going to say, no, sir, I'm not going to give you your product yeah. now. <laughs> <laughs> don't be intimidated. You know, protect your right to your own privacy. When a major newspaper calls me up, as they did just last week, give me a great deal on a subscription to which I agree, they can ask me for my credit card information, as they did, but I didn't give it to them. I asked them for their extension number, then I called the number I found in the newspaper, then I gave them my credit card information because I placed the call. You just don't answer the phone and say, you know, somebody says they're from a certain paper, and would you like a subscription, can I have your credit card information? Sure. No. No, Could you call them. Yeah. Exactly. You are in control of your information, and it's only by being too free with your information that you now feel that the government should be proactive and interrogate businesses even if no crime has been committed. Read your contracts. Be judicial in giving out your information. 
If a company misuses your information, then take them to court. But to have a privacy czar knocking on any business's, businessman's door, compelling them to give information which may be used against them, and doing things even policemen find difficult to do, it scares me more than spam email. <laughs> oh, ab absolutely. <laughs> it's far worse than finding any advertising cookie on my computer, and it's much more worse than having my picture of my street taken by Google. Uh, you know, absolutely. And, and these are all things you can choose and avoid if you want to. Um, I'll tell you, I took your principle further. You said, um, you know, you have to be responsible about who you get information to. Well, for the last, sev I don't know how many, several censuses of, this, of the country, I have refused to participate and made it quite a public issue. I've uh, had quite a, uh, a set of arguments with the last census taker at my apartment door. It was a three-week-long adventure. i got to tell you, that guy tried to trap me <laughs> down. He was waiting for me when I got home. It was amazing. I just couldn't believe it. And, of course, I got the long form, which wanted to go back into my... Uh, things I didn't even know about myself, uh, go back as far as I can in my heritage and explain my lineage and, and what country my father came from, what country my mother came from, what their lineage was, and I'm sitting there thinking, they want to compel this information. This can only be used for evil. can't possibly be used for good. It's not even possible. No government. Here's government, you know, they talk, we don't want race, everybody, you know, human rights commissions, and they are so racially obsessed in the information that they themselves collect so that they can give racial groups special exactly. privileges with taxpayer money. Exactly. And that's the reason we have all of this stuff in the first place, because the government is projecting its guilt onto its citizens because it's doing all the things that it says we shouldn't do, even age discrimination, who sets, who sets retirement standards, who sets all that stuff. It's the government exactly. all the time. They break all of their rules. You know, I was a businessman for a number of years, Bob, about 10 years or so, and every year I'd be sent these packages, a couple times a year from Stats Canada, asking me to fill out these forms, telling me all the sordid details of my business down to the intricate financial details. I got those too when I was at the permanent. But here's the, here's the good part about it. I never sent them in, ever. And uh, finally, they gave me a call. I actually got a phone call from Stats Canada saying, you know, we've sent you these forms and you're not sending them in. And I said, I'm not going to. And they go, what do you mean? And I said, well... What if my my information I give you um, adversely affects my business? He says, oh, well, it's just the aggregate that we publish. We're not going to publish your information. And I said, well, what if my information changes the aggregate such that my business is either doing too well or not doing well at all? If it's doing too well and you publish that information, all of a sudden I'm going to be inundated with competitors because people think that my, the business area that I'm in is going to be great sure. for them. So now I've just ruined myself because I've got more competition because of what I've filled out in your report. If it's too bad, if I'm saying my business is either stagnant or declining, and you publish that information, then what if I go to the bank trying to get a loan? The bank's going to look at the StatsCan report on my business and say, well, I'm sorry, your, your area your is, is declined, depressed or something. so yeah. we're not going to give you a loan. You know exactly. something? He said that he'd never heard that argument before, and I never heard from Stats Canada ever again. Wow. They never sent me another package. That, that's a good argument. Um, but, of course, it, it's, it's just a, 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 what do you call, a pragmatic argument, really. It is. It doesn't but, stop him from trying to, trying to pry into your personal affairs. No, I had the same problem when I was working for Canada Permanent Trust Company. And the thing I got a call over was, I used to fill them out. When you're acting as an agent for someone else, you don't act on your own accord. Mm -hmm. um, so I'd fill them out and send them in as accurate as I could, and they didn't like the information. And um, when they called back, they said, why? I was in the real estate uh, division at the time. They wanted all um, what we called conditional deals included in our stats and things, because half of them would fall, you know, just go by the wayside. And so uh, it basically, I said, well, that would be a guess at the best. And they said, yeah, that's okay. So for the rest of the time, I guess. I just wrote down, never looked at a thing, just sent it in. And they were happy. I never got a call from them again. And I was thinking, gee, I wonder if the whole Stats Canada system works this way. You know, Bob, uh, I, I can uh, sum all this up in one phrase. What? We're talking about the right to privacy, right? Yeah. It seems that the government has a right to your privacy. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> that's, that's a good one. Um, but I have to, you know, I had it right here. My only comment, I said, you know, privacy is a value, not a right. And it was surprised. I didn't check Ayn Rand, uh, mm -hmm. and she had the same conclusion as, as you uh, discussed. I think even the word right we have to look at a little differently in the future. 
I've been talking a lot about this lately. I think that word misleads even freedom-minded people a lot in terms of where to focus on issues. Uh, it's, it's a very easy thing to concretize the word right and use it like a noun, like it's something you own, when really its proper context is either as an adjective describing an action or as a verb, the action itself. And uh, so some view a right as a relationship. You hear people saying uh, rights are a, quote, social contract or something like that. Um, again, that's a derivative, quote, right. I wouldn't call that a fundamental right, but they can be legal rights, and, and of course they do exist. And um, have you run into that mentality that just wants to give up any information? I hear it all the time, and it'll come up in my topic later on. You know, Well, you know, the, the what-have-I-got-to-hide mentality. I haven't got anything to hide from the government. I'm not doing anything bad, so it's okay <laughs> for the government to collect all the information on me. I certainly hope we don't go down that road where a lot of people think like that, and then all of a sudden... I hear them, I hear them on talk shows all the you time. You have the police pulling you over for no reason right. at all. Oh, imagine that. Can't <laughs> possibly happen here in Canada. What? In Canada? <laughs> now, we're going to take a break at the bottom of the hour here, and I just wanted to point out... Um, this, was, this is, again, from the same episode of uh, Yes, Minister that we just heard. And, of course, the, the fundamental story running through that story was that, of course, it's uh, not so much the politicians pushing these things as the bureaucracy mm-hmm. and the people behind the scenes. Because if you look at from City Hall right up to the top, you'll notice that the policies are gen- generally, um, you know, they originate in the administration somewhere and have been on the on the books for years and years and these poor new politicians that keep coming in every four or five years who know nothing of the, of the nature of government get caught up in it so finally the minister in this episode figures out a way to outsmart the bureaucracy and that's uh, now of course here again they're talking about protecting the citizen from the government collecting information on them and uh, on the other side of this break when we come back we'll be talking about another privacy issue I guess you could call it that about pulling people off the road without any real due suspicion (laughs) and our man on the spot tonight is the right honorable Jim Hacker Minister for Administrative Affairs, the man at the heart of the Big Brother computer controversy. He's talking to Godfrey Finch. Minister, as you know, there's been an outcry this week about the dossier that the uh, civil service bureaucracy has apparently been building up uh, on every citizen in this country. Uh, Now, it's rumoured that uh, this is not, in fact, your own policy, uh, that you'd like to have uh, safeguards for the individual citizen, but that you are being totally frustrated at every stage of the game by the civil service machine. You know, Godfrey, (coughs) there's a lot of nonsense talked about the civil service. It's actually a marvellous, efficient, professional organisation capable of enormous energy and speed. It's staffed by a lot of talented dedicated people who do everything in their power to help the government to make its policies into law. Yes, well, thank you for the commercial, Minister. (laughs) Perhaps we can start the programme now. (laughs) The fact of the matter is that the civil service and I are in complete accord over this whole business. And I'm happy to announce that we're now ready to put our proposals into publication. In fact, tonight, I can say that from September the 1st, every citizen of the UK will have the absolute right to inspect his personal file and check any information that he or she has ever supplied to the government. No civil servant will be allowed to examine personal files from another department without a written authority from a minister. And I shall be announcing in the House next week legislation enabling citizens to take legal action against any civil servant who gains unauthorised access to his file. <laughs> Encouraging, Minister. Why did you not say so in the first place and put people's minds at rest? Frankly, I didn't believe that the civil service could meet our deadlines, Godfrey. But they've convinced me that they can. And in fact, my permanent secretary has staked his reputation on it. <laughs> if not, heads will roll. <laughs> Anyway, assistant heads. <laughs> uh, well, uh, thank you very much, Minister. It can't be done. It's been announced on television. Well, Bernard, what did you make of our Minister's performance? Well, I, uh, I, I think it's checkmate. <laughs> <laughs>
Canadian, because uh, I am an alcoholic. I like the ice beer from Labatt's too. It's a good kick for you. Hey, like, yeah, 5.6% alcohol. That's all right, you know? My buddy, he drinks black ice, right? It's 5.7. <laughs> Gets an extra 0.1% over me that way, trying to figure what it does for him. You know, maybe gets to go off the road a quarter mile earlier. Why waste the time and the gas, I guess. <laughs> Sorry, officer, ran into a little black ice there on the road. And welcome back. Uh, black ice on the road, yeah, that's one thing you don't want to run into. You want to r rather run into 50 or uh, some other brand of beer or something, eh? <laughs> Anyways, we're going to be talking about unreasonable suspicion. I'm here with Robert Vaughn here at CHRW 94.9 FM. You can call 661-3600 if you want to join in on the conversation, have any experiences to share. Just looking at this article in the free press, NDP favors random breathalyzer where, you know, the law currently allows police to administer breathalyzer tests only if they suspect a driver has been drinking. And now that law is going to be changed according to what the Harper government has introduced in legislation in Parliament with all-party support. Um, definitely, Robert, I think this is another, you know, privacy law in many ways, although there is an overriding issue. We're not in private, on private property. We might be in it in our cars. But we're not on private property, and that can complicate things a little bit. However, arbitrary is arbitrary, and it doesn't matter where, whether it's on public, private, or private, or wherever. If it's just arbitrary, uh, it's very dangerous. And I hear a lot of commentators saying that the question that remains about this legislation is that can the law survive a court challenge? As soon as I ask that question, I'm going, well, that means they already know it violates our rights, <laughs> right? And so they're wondering if the courts will let them get away with it. Okay, that's all it is. Now, of course, I understand that uh, the courts have already arrived at a similar decision, I think, uh, over the, the ride issue. Um, they've already decided that such programs do violate individual rights. I seem to recall rights, that, yeah. yeah. But that such violation can be reasonably justified in a free and democratic country, which is the line that the police are pushing as well. Um, if that's so, I would suggest that, that it's because the courts aren't doing their job. And, uh, you know, when you hear the worst cases, it's always somebody that's already been convicted many, many times of the same offense. But I, I think the principle of this new law, as they're bringing it out, is twofold. Uh, you've got employment of this precautionary principle. We've gone nuts on this thing, you know. Uh, people just don't want to have any risk out there at all. So rather than, uh, it's almost the opposite, punish the many to catch the few rather than let one or two guilty go to catch, you know, to leave the innocent alone. We're almost going the other way. The other principle, I think, is, of course, punishing the many f to catch the few and punishing the innocent to catch the guilty. Um, you know, I, I obey the law, and I said this on another station earlier this week, be because I don't want to be pulled over by the police. I don't want to be hassled. I don't want to be bothered like that, you know? And if by being a good person, that's not going to stop you from being harassed by police, why bother? I mean, pull me over for something then, you know? Um, now, there's a... You know, people just don't learn from history, maybe, and I was really shocked at some of the doubts people had over this situation because everybody, of course, wants to do something about dr drinking and driving. And um, they just are grasping at straws now when they start picking at laws like this to make it appear that they can actually do something. You know something, Bob? There will always, always be drinking and driving. So, I mean, how far do you want to go with these draconian laws to stop something that will never stop? Well, you, exactly. But what you have to do is, I think, is have effective um, justice administered after the fact. Exactly. We're free agents until we prove that we don't have that agency. Drinking and driving is such a thing. If you're drinking, or if you're not, if you're drinking and not driving, or driving and not drinking, nobody should be pulling you over just to check for the other guy. Um, some people may disagree with that, but. Uh, you know, arbitrary questioning and detention, I think, is, is it's a moral obscenity. It's fascism. That's what it is. It's, there's no other word for it when people are pulling you over. Where have you been? Where, where are you going? What are you doing? Of course, they're not doing that here. They're asking you if you can drink or if you've been drinking. Now, here's what I heard London Police Sergeant Tom O'Brien say on CJBK this past Monday morning. And he, he suggested that all this reaction is really 
you know, overblown, and that really what's changing is a single thing, that when a driver does not show any obvious signs of drinking at a checkpoint or other such thing, in other words, he implied that we're only pulling the guy over because we already have some suspicion. But up until now, they could go up to somebody and say, have you had a drink or have you been drinking? If the answer was in the negative, um, they let that person go. Now they no longer uh, have to have a, a, a negative answer. If they get any kind, they don't have to assume that you haven't been drinking if you say you haven't. They can now say, uh, no, we're going to force you to take this uh, test anyway. And basically the police don't have to accept your answer anymore. And he said that's all that really changed. And then he says, quote, we'll, we'll infringe on the rights of some for the greater good, which again is what the court decision was saying about the ride programs in the first place. And um, I think that's where the whole problem lays with this issue is that, uh, you know, once you have the state itself starting to infringe on rights, they've just given up their whole purpose for existence. Exactly. You know something? I think we have to go back and look at the word right and inviolable. What does it mean, you know, when you have a fundamental right? It means you cannot break it. You cannot. Or it doesn't the exist. The That's government right. cannot break it for any reason. You're, it is a right. That's what the definition of the word is. It means you cannot break it. Now, unfortunately, in this country, we have Section 1 of the Constitution, which gives the government an out, saying that, yes, we can break your rights or violate your rights um, as, dem as demonstrably justified in free and democratic society. Mm -hmm. And they've done, they've done that with the ride program, for example. The court actually said, yes, I think the word they're violating your rights. Reasonably demonstrated. Uh, yes, something. reasonably demonstrated. So in there's a, some uh, kind of reason being applied to the process, but uh, still, arbitrary is still a very scary way to go. I don't think there's much reason in there. There might be a reason behind it, but what can you do? going to take a break now. When we come back on the other side of this, we're going to answer a question that we received from one of our listeners. Yeah, I was a cop. I was a cop in Houston, and in Houston, Texas, uh, all white neighborhoods, so frequently I get this call, 527, and we have a report of a suspicious black male, approximately six foot one, weighing 180 pounds, driving a patrol car. So I'm looking for him, because I did. I don't drink beer, by the way. I'm allergic to beer. I have like 15 to 16 in my throw up. <laughs> I do, I'm in the parking lot. Hey, I'm allergic. Look at all these allergies on me. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, yeah, it's been a long time since I've actually... Uh, I gave beer up a long time ago. I think I'm allergic just, to beer, I too, Bob. It uh, <laughs> happens to you, too, does it? Not for a long time, but... Yeah. <laughs> Uh, welcome back to the show. You're listening to CHRW on 94.9 FM here in London, broadcasting from the studios here at, at, at um, UWO, University of Western Ontario. I know a lot of you aren't always aware that that's where the studios are located, and I'm in studio with Robert Vaughn, who joins me as a co-host on Just Right uh, as often as we possibly can. Now, before I address the utter futility of arguing with a socialist, <laughs> um, we received a, 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 an email from a listener, Stephen, and I thought it was a very interesting email. So, Robert, I'm going to have you read it because it relates more than just the questions, but, but an experience he's had that I'm sure some listeners listening to this show may also have. And uh, I thought we'd address the questions afterwards. So uh, why don't you read Stephen's uh, letter for us, and then I'll tackle the questions. Okay, so this is from Stephen. And it, and it reads as follows. Hi, Bob. I'm a third-year student, <laughs> third student from one of, your health, from one of the health science programs at U of T. I listen to your show every week to stay optimistic, especially about the health care problems we face in Canada. Last week, I had the chance to debate with a socialist. After the debate, I had much to learn about some of the debating tactics and how to avoid the pitfalls, such as how to defend yourself against ad hominem attacks and deflections. Personally, I felt very uncomfortable during the debate, I don't know how you can stand talking them longer than a minute. However, That's about my limit. <laughs> <laughs> however, there are some key arguments from the socialists during the exchange that I want to share with you. One. Yeah, he named five of them here, yeah. Mm -hmm. One, why should the government have police, military, and justice system only? What makes these different from health care? Why should I pay for the police? When I challenged the fact that I have no obligation to pay for others' health care, he deflected by asking me what I think the government should provide. 
Boy, did I not expect that one. All I said was that these are the functions that make government possible by definition. Everything else doesn't. Is this correct? I felt shortchanged for not defending this position properly. Two, why don't you live in the U.S. if you like their health care system so much? I told him that the health care that the health care was heavily regulated in the U.S. and is hardly private. And after giving him the evidence, through mentioning some recent reports and articles, he said they were probably conducted by the health insurance corporations. I did not know what to say to that. It seems validity depends on authority. Three, nobody complains about their health care in Sweden, Britain, etc. I challenge the surveys are usually done by the government and that people who aren't sick would usually rip support public health care since they don't really have to pay for it and that you can prove anything with stats. He retorted that I just don't want to believe anything that goes against what I argue. Four, who, meaning the World Health Organization, shows that uh, prenatal death is lowest in socialized health care countries and life expectancy is highest too. I argue that the U.S. has lower life expectancy due to obesity and not due to the system. But I don't know how to explain why life expectancy is higher in other countries other than that. Five, government is just providing a minimum standard and doesn't mean other people won't have a choice to get better health care. I argue that such minimum standards drives everyone's service down to just that, minimum. I also maintain that mandatory insurance is never about helping the poor. For other than charity, it would be quite easy to simply tax the middle class and the rich to subsidize the poor. So why mandatory insurance? He called me cynical and that the government can be efficient too. It was very frustrating to continue with the debate, but I look forward to learning more from you in how to deal with these issues. Sincerely, Stephen from Toronto. Well, those are the kind of questions you expect from people who are really seriously trying to you know, get into a debate with someone. Um, I, th- I would say part of your frustration, Stephen, is that you were kind of caught up in a very pragmatic and superficial debate and kind of playing more the, the, on defense than offense. But we'll get to that bigger picture at the end. I think I don't want to avoid the specific questions that you did ask since they are, you know, they have answers. And uh, although they aren't the, the essential of the issue. And the first one is, although this is sort of essential, why should the government have police, military, and justice system only? Now, we've done complete shows on this, so I'll always check out our site at www.justrightmedia.org, where, in fact, just a couple of weeks ago, I did uh, the opening quarter on, on the very nature of government and what government is and is not. Now, actually, it's the military police and the court system, which combined and restrained under an objective rule of laws, um, you know, outlining the proper use of physical force in society. And this creates a condition that we otherwise know as justice and, coincidentally, freedom itself. Now, as a direct consequence of its objective to ensure justice, the government has and should have an exclusive monopoly on the retaliatory use of physical force in a free society. Civilization is based on the individual rights precisely because individual rights, in order to be valid, prohibit the use of physical coercion coercion in human relationships. That's what human individual rights are all about. And, uh, you know, yet another reason why a civilized society is a, so- is a society of individualism, as you quoted earlier in the show there, Robert, mm-hmm. on your subject. It, it, it all comes around to the same thing all the time. And w- that leaves people free to go their own separate and private ways if they can't come to certain agreements, which is a far more civilized way than one side forcing the other side to do what it wants. And that's what you see going on in all the parts of the world that we call uncivilized. Remember, government is a gun. Whenever we're having a conversation about what our governments should do, what we're really asking ourselves is, to what extent will we apply the initiation of physical force by some against others in order to achieve some given economic, social, or religious objective or goal? Because that's what they're always used for. You know, you hear some people suggest that government should be run like a business, which is an argument which philosophically ignores the law of identity. A is A. Government is a gun, which would mean that government would have to be made voluntary if it was going to be a business, which would mean it would cease being a government. (laughs) It all comes down to the law of identity. And it would become a gang doing the bidding of those who voluntarily pay for its services, which is what happens. That's the anarchistic viewpoint, too. Competing governments, competing services. The authority to use offensive initiatory force is not a service you can sell on a free market. In fact, when we say free market, we mean free from coercion. So the very notion is a contradiction from the outset. 
Now, you asked, uh, the second part of that question is, what makes these different from health care? Well, no doctors or nurses I know have a monopoly on the use of retaliatory force in society, so their status is not even remotely similar to police, military, or the courts. And uh, you know, remember, anytime you're engaged in a so-called discussion of government health care, bear in mind that the subject, again, avoiding the law of identity, is not about health care, which would mean we'd be talking about specific medicines and practices that ensure health. Again, here it's A is not A again. Actual health care is private practice. You as an individual, doctors, nurses, and other competing practitioners are a service industry. No different than car mechanics, and I know that bothers a lot of people. You know, the non-sequitur in most people's minds that makes doctors different from mechanics is the fact that they play a high, place a higher personal value on their own life than they would, say, on a car at a given point in time. But payment for services of someone who's providing you with such a service is an individual responsibility, and government attempting to take over payment of that service will not change that fact, even no matter how much they try. Again, they're ignoring reality. So what you're really talking about is government intervention in the provision of a so-called health insurance, which again is not insurance. I mean, the, the, the amount of times we break the law of identity, no wonder people can never... They don't even know what the cat is and what the dog Isn't is. Isn't that 1984 all uh, over again where absolutely. they say, like, the Ministry of Peace is the actual war Everything. department? Exactly. It's non-identity. And, and that's its purpose. What we have is called a single-payer system. It's a non-user system where non-users pay and users don't pay. That's why our health care system is so corrupt from top to bottom. And yet the endless parade of criminal frauds and wastes of billions of tax health, their health dollars will not convince a single socialist, liberal, NDP, or conservative that anything could possibly be wrong with the system. And we're seeing that. You see them coming out defending the system no matter how corrupt it is from top to bottom. They just think that putting an honest person in the midst of hell will make them a good person. You know? Deb Matthews, who just took over the Ministry oh, of Health, I, she, she said, we're going to move ahead with this e-health thing, uh, even though it just spent a billion dollars for nothing. And e-health in and of itself, I'm do, we're going to be doing a show on that, Robert, that the, the, the very concept of e-health is an obscenity. It's, it's, it's a ridiculous notion, and, and Obama's into it, too. That's his big plan. But every they're collecting information on the citizenry. That's all they're going to do, and it'll cost them billions and billions. We've seen all these information collection agencies that gun registry, the whole bunch. Now, here's an important question. Boy, time's running, isn't it? Mm -hmm. um, why should I pay for the police? Um, and here I'm assuming you mean, why should I pay the government for police services? Well, the reason is for justice. Since all of us have to be treated equally under the law, and since it's truly in the public interest, if ever there was a time at which you could use that term properly, to be certain that the law remains objective so that innocent people aren't falsely accused and punished by, by the state and so that those responsible for true criminal behavior are the actual ones brought to justice. It is of paramount importance that our police and courts be free from private interests and influences that might otherwise bribe or persuade a court to rule in a particular direction. By the way, Bob, if it, I can interrupt, yeah. that is precisely the argument against yourself and myself and the libertarians. In what, in what way? They would suggest, for example, that you can have competing police forces. Yes. And uh, you can have competing services, but not mm. a competing authorities. That's Two different correct. things. There's lots of private police. In fact, essentially, if you look at the London police force, it's, a te it's technically a private police. It's run by the city of London, paid for by the city of London, but operates under federal, Authority. provincial, and municipal authorities, mm -hmm. all predetermined long in advance. So... Um, again, you know, you get a question like, why don't you live in the U.S. if you don't like their health care, if you like their health care system so much? Well, first of all, I don't think you were probably talking about the U.S. health care system, certainly not from what you told. And, uh, you know, I wonder what would happen if you ask your socialist opponent who, being socialist, why he doesn't move to the most socialist countries <laughs> with the most socialist programs if he, you know, if he thinks we're not far enough along the road. It's a good rebuttal to that non-sequitur. Uh, I, I tell you. And also, how will your living in the U.S. improve the Canadian health care system? I don't know how that will happen. Just because there's one less of us to, to compete for the system? Of course, this whole question is a non-sequitur. This person's trying to dismiss you. Um, doesn't, you know, he's either not interested in addressing any objective problems with the health care system, no matter what you tell him factually or otherwise will have an effect on him since his mind is made up in advance. He's capable of offering any objective, or incapable rather, of offering any objective evidence to support his own viewpoints. 
And so by dismissing you, he can equate the two of you, and therefore, hey, your opinion's equivalent to mine, even though yours is attached to reality and mine isn't. And that's exactly what you see all the time. Uh, nobody complains about their health care in Sweden, Britain, etc. Is this guy kidding? Nobody? Yeah, of course people complain about them. Check as far back in the 1980s. L- listen to Yes Minister. I can't tell you how many shows they made back then complaining about the British health care system. Listen to the ongoing debate in the House of Commons and the news about constant budget, budget shortages and increasing government spending which never reach a plateau. You know, the person who's saying that nobody complains about health care in those countries is just not listening or, or is lying. One, you know, two more signs he's not interested really in the debate or in the essentials of the debate. Because really, what does it matter? Uh, you know, the, the thing you have to ask these people is what is their moral justification for replacing consent with coercion? And, you know, at the bottom of it, you'll never get an answer because all of them, socialists, liberals, NDPers, even conservatives, all want something for nothing at some level, even if they're unaware of it. On a, on a conscious level. And to the extent that a few of them are aware of it, you know, about there's something for nothing entitlement, they still don't seem to have a moral problem with it. So there's nothing a rational person can offer such a person in the way of evidence or argument to convince them about something that, you know, they aren't going to give up on. So save your arguments for people who are willing to listen, or if you must debate a socialist, do it for the sport. That's why I do it. It's really fun, you know. If you want to see how powerful your arguments are, it won't take long, especially after you're critically aware of their mindset, and you can easily manipulate them. Just get them to answer a few questions, trap them in their contradictions, sit back and smile. It's, It's really funny to watch, and you can do it over and over and over again. Your best weapon is not facts, stats, or pragmatic, he said, she said, circular debates. But, you know, you have to realize that reality is the arbiter of all disputes. Reason is the only way to arrive at the right right answer on anything. And, of course, there are already several archived broadcasts of this show available online that explicitly deal with every question you answered, even the one about how to debate liberals and when you should and when you shouldn't. Same problem as John Stossel had, in fact. I think that's the show where I talked about it, when John Stossel, uh, we featured some clips from him. Uh, Robert, I can't believe it. I think our time is up. What do you think? I think think? so, too, yeah. Yeah, I think we've got to go. But, you know, on that last uh, comment you just said, I think I'm going to start a blog. Okay. And start putting some of this stuff on uh, this stuff online, you know, so that people can actually see it in writing, maybe to help out Stephen as well. I think that's a great idea. Yeah. And we'll offer it as a service. Wouldn't that be a good there idea? There you go. Bronwyn, I think we're ready to get out of here. So let's go. And we hope you'll join us again next week when we don't know what we'll be talking about, but we will be moving in the right direction. Eh, Robert? We will indeed. Yeah, take care. Fade into color, color into black and white, under the bedclothes. I'm getting old, too. Oh, man, I'm getting old. I got drunk five days ago. My knee still hurt. (laughs) And a bad drunk, too. Mike's Hard Lemonade. What was I thinking, huh? I don't understand the product to begin with. It's booze and lemonade. I want to get drunk, but I want to feel like I'm four. (laughs) You're in luck.